He who would become a surgeon should join an army and follow it. That is a quote attributed to Hippocrates, the father of medicine, and perfectly describes the educational and career arc of our very special guest, Dr. Kenneth Azaro. Richie and I met with Kenny in Philadelphia, where he was overseeing the general surgery certifying exam. For Richie and me, this was the first time we had seen Kenny in over 40 years. As you'll hear during this episode of Power of Three, Kenny's inspiring and compelling story began in Oceanside, where the three of us were teammates on the Oceanside High School varsity soccer team. When we think of our greatest citizens, the soldier is paramount. The soldier signs up to defend the liberty of other people and is willing to give his or her life doing it. There is no greater love than laying down your life for a friend. Also at the top of the ladder of societal importance is the doctor, the person who dedicates his or her life to keeping people well and many times keeping them alive. As Tom said, today's podcast features a man who is both a soldier and a doctor who has spent a tour in Iraq and a tour in Afghanistan. Our good friend from the good old days, Dr. Colonel Kenny Azaro. Um, Tom, I, I can't tell you uh, how much this actually means to me to see, see both you and Richie. It's, uh, I've been back to, uh, to our, our old home in Oceanside once in the past approximately 40 years, and, uh, and it's been over 40 years, as you said, since I've seen you. So this is, uh, this is very special to me. Thanks for inviting me. It's our pleasure to, to have you here today. And we do want to say that this is originating from Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love, That's and here right. we are, guys. Here we are. <laughs> so we're very happy to be here, and we thank you for finding some time to, uh, to share with us your, your story, your, your compelling story, your inspiring story, Kenny. Absolutely. So we thank you. My pleasure. In advance. Well, in each of our podcasts, we're trying to delve into people like yourself who are doing good or, or great things in the world, and um, we're kind of trying to find out what makes the man as we go along in our podcast. So we're going to go back, starting in Oceanside, where um, you grew up, and we want to know first maybe some memories of Oceanside, and then what your family life, life was growing up, and then was there a part of that family life and early experience that kind of drove you towards where you were going to go eventually, or did it go in one part to the next part? Well, it, it, really my story is probably one of serendipity, just progressing from one, from one step to the next and then taking advantage of, of opportunities that present themselves. Um, Really, the memories I have um, are uh, are of you guys and us playing soccer, soccer. together, playing <laughs> basketball together. Um, we had the basketball court in the backyard, and uh, it's uh, just we're, we're endless, endless days. Kenny, driving up here, I mentioned to Richie that one of my most vivid memories growing up is spending hours in your backyard. You had 
the deepest backyard in Oceanside, I believe you had the pool, but you had the basketball court, and the hours that we spent in your backyard, or I look back so fondly of the times that we spent there. Uh, you know, it's it's even going back further as as your your memory fools you as to the time difference. So before um, my parents put in the the pool and and the basketball court, mm -hmm. which happened when we were in high school, um, it was all open. So right. we had multiple homes right next to each other, and it was an entire football field. <laughs> so we we really could have an event there. And and there were a number of kids from the neighborhood, and it was there was always something going on. There always. Yeah. Well. It, it really is something that we look back fondly on. Um, is there a particular story or something that you have thought about over the years, recurring over the years, that um, when you think of Oceanside and growing up there, that you think back fondly of, of something in particular, socially or the friends or anything in particular that comes to mind? So I don't know if you remember this. Um, uh, every, every day, or, or I should say one day every year in the summertime, there were four families and we used to go out and uh, I think it, we started in Belmont State Park and we wound up in our backyard and uh, we used to call it the outing. And uh, I, you know, we, my whole family looked forward to that every single year and I think we must have done that for over a decade. I, I think that that is an accurate assessment of how long our families got together. And again, Rich, did Tom, I not mention Tom that? Tom had spoken of that outing <laughs> as we were driving up here and it's something that he remembered fondly, yeah. And I remember your dad and Michael, the neighbor, Michael Palomini, playing in the wiffle ball. Wiffle ball in the backyard. In the backyard. Yeah. And um, that was yeah. always a big part of the outing. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and for those who, who may not know, Michael uh, succumbed to muscular dystrophy. So every year um, the event was more and more important. And mm -hmm. uh, um, we, we tailored the event to, uh, for more and more support so that, uh, that he could participate. So it was a very special time. It was. Um, I have one funny story. I'll get it out of the way early. <laughs> and um, I know what you're going to say. One member, well, you, we all played soccer together. We mm -hmm. won the conference championship mm -hmm. that year. We were undefeated, mm -hmm. and you were um, second-string goalie. In the, your following year, your senior year, you were first-string goalie. Right. And I was playing an outside halfback position, and your dad would, was right near me. You got an opportunity to get in the game, and I don't know exactly what transpired, but I know you had a mouthful of blood. Oh, yeah. I, I remember that day. <laughs> and, you, and, your da and so time had stopped. The game had stopped, and your dad and I were chatting, and all of a sudden he said, where's he going? So I said, he's, oh, his mouth is full of blood, Mr. Azarov. He says, please, could you get over there and tell him to get back into the game? <laughs> Do you remember he said, he said, he just hasn't had that many opportunities to play. Get him back in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually do remember that game. It's uh, it's one of the few games I got into my junior year. Um, I actually think Paul Cookiezi got got hurt. He uh -huh. was a starting goalie. That's right. And he like either twisted a leg or something like that. So I went in, um, and it was... You know, one of those 50-50 balls, uh, somebody was coming in on the goal, and I went down and threw my body in front of it and got kicked in the face. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what happened next. Um, uh, definitely would have been in the concussion blood. protocol if they had <laughs> one back then. <laughs> right, yeah, but a, a lot of blood. We went to uh, South Nassau Community Hospital. 
Um, and uh, my dad took me there. And actually, I saw Paul in the emergency room there. He was getting something x-rayed, as yeah. I recall. I, I, I who played goalie for the end of that game? That's so a I, I have, question. I, don't have no, I have no idea who replaced me in the that's, goal that's at that point. usually something that you remember. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. But wow. uh, I, re I actually remember that vividly. It took, took a couple stitches. I sat out a couple days and then was was back to the yeah. uh, uh, back to my backup role as as Paul was healthy and went back in the game. Uh -huh. well, well, Kenny, fast forward a year. How was your senior year? I, I really have no memory of what your senior year was like. Had, since we ever you were graduated, we're, we're you, you at were at that point. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, and um, so my senior year w was awesome. We uh, we made it to the conference championship game uh, again. Um, we lost to uh, I think Cold Spring Harbor. Uh, and very interesting, when I went and started playing at Franklin and Marshall, the goalie for Cold Spring Harbor was uh, one of the four freshman goalies oh, vying wow. for the spot. So um, it's, uh, it actually you know, really was, was fun. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we had a great competition but, uh, in, in college, but back to high school, we had a, a tremendous team. Um, there are some people and characters that the two of you will remember. And I think of them very fondly. Howard Borkin comes to mind instantly. <laughs> sure. That was and a name I knew would come up at some yeah. point in this podcast. Yeah. So I'm happy We've that you've been in touch it. with Howie. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, we teased Howie for years uh, um, in that championship game. Uh, you know, there was an open goal miss that the, the newspaper caught. And, uh, right. and it was, uh, so we teased him for a long time. He was mm -hmm. probably overall the best athlete on our team, mm -hmm. uh, certainly the fastest, and, and, and I would consider him the best athlete overall. Mm -hmm. And we just had tremendous players, a lot of whom went on to play did, in college. Does Howie know that we were doing this podcast, and did he reach out to you? To, he did to not. He, he does not know we're doing this. Uh, okay, all right. And <laughs> I haven't spoken to, to him in about a year. Right. We speak to each other about once a year right. as it comes up. But uh, We went to a Met game with Howie this year, and we, we spoke reconnected, and I told him that you and I have spoken and that we were going to do this at some point. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. So you know he's going to hear this. Well, that's <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> so was there anybody else? You mentioned Howie. Was there anybody so, else who stood So in, in front of me, kind of on the back line, so Scott Tripler um, yeah. was our, Scott was was our center back. Yeah. Scott went to, went to Williams. Um, I, I thought he was just going to crush it in, in soccer, but he wound up growing on the crew at Williams wow. uh, during his He's time so there. And, and uh, right. he was. And uh, I lost touch with him when he, when he went to college. Um, then uh, Bobby Jacobs, Andy Dim, Scott wow. Henry, mm -hmm. you know, running through right. the whole list. They were uh, right. Rodney Zimmerman, just, just a great group of athletes, mm -hmm. and, and we had a good time together. We have had the opportunity over the last year or so to talk a lot about Artie Wright. Oh, yeah. Um, and I've interviewed a lot of, uh, Rich and I have talked to a lot of the uh, players from the championship soccer teams of 50 years ago, uh, the Long Island championship right. teams for Oceanside. And everybody talked about Artie Wright, you know, in, in very fond terms. Is there something that, that stands out about Artie Wright with you? Um, he was pretty tough on me, and, and all appropriately so. Um, uh, I was not very fast, but I was pretty quick. I had good hands, good anticipation, but I was not the strongest. I mean, I probably mm. needed to start weight training right. a lot earlier than I did in my life. And he mm. used to get on me for it, and right. uh, very appropriately so. And I, th I thought he was a great coach. Yeah, he was tough on a lot of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that but everybody who played from recognizes that he was. 
Right. It could be tough, but, but the thing about Artie Wright, you wanted to do as right. well as you could for Artie oh, Wright. Oh, yeah, and he was tough for a purpose. He just wasn't tough to abuse you. Yeah. He, he, you know, he was there to make you better, so, right. so he was hard on you so you'd improve yourself. Right. So, Kenny, talk us through a little bit about um, how you wound up at Franklin and Marshall. So this is another uh, memory that you may or may not remember. So um, I think it was your senior year of high school, um, my junior year. Um, your dad, my dad, you and I drove up to Colgate. I do and, remember uh, that. And we actually, which is where your dad went. Which is where my dad went, and we were both interviewed there mm -hmm. uh, that day. And um, the, uh, the, the soccer coach, I think, liked you better than me, but he told me I could just come there and have no problems, um, uh, you know, after my senior year. Mm -hmm. So having kind of that in my back pocket, um, I went into my senior year and started looking at schools. And uh, uh, of course, since my dad went there, I wanted nothing to do with that uh, <laughs> university, as great a, as great a university yeah, right, as it is. Right. And actually, the place that recruited me the hardest was Franklin and Marshall College. Mm -hmm. Coach was a guy named Al Hershey, um, and he really stayed on top of me during my senior year. Um, I used to get letters or calls after games, um, and uh, I was fortunate. Uh, I, I don't know if Newsday is still the Long Island paper out yeah, there, yeah, yeah. but I, I was in Newsday every week, and, you know, he would just say, saw you in the newspaper, and uh, um, so that's how it was. And uh, I knew I wanted a, to be a physician, and they had one of the best pre-med programs in the country, so it was a great match. Perfect for so you. I applied for early acceptance. I got into school, I think, in November, and I cruised the rest of my senior right, year. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. I know Richie and I are probably going to ask the same question, but I'll, you knew, at what point did you know that you wanted to become a physician? Um, so, very interesting. Not just a physician as things happen, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Wow. So, one of my dad's clients. Um, was a guy named uh, Dr. Sujo Yanikasawa, who was the uh, was the team orthopedic surgeon for the Knicks and the Rangers. I met him on several occasions, and I thought that is really cool. Um, and uh, I, as you remember, I had a lot of broken bones uh, <laughs> growing up, and it just seemed like a natural transition. You know, we dream as kids, and if we're not going to be professional athletes, you want to be mm -hmm. as close as possible. Um, right. You know, I still had the professional athlete dream probably <laughs> at that point, and it didn't come up to reality um, probably until I was in college, but um, it was, uh, uh, that's kind of how it started. Mm -hmm. So I went down on that pre-med track and um, played soccer at F&M for four years. And how did you do there? How the team do, and how did you do? So we had a great team, actually. We were Division Three, Middle Atlantic Conference. Um, any given year, we either won the conference or or, um, or were runner-up. We were always in some postseason tournament. Mm -hmm. um, tremendous people, some of my closest friends to, to this right. day. And um, uh, we started out, there were um, four goalies um, in, in the freshman class, and there was a junior. Um, it turns out that um, uh, uh, the... One of my freshman classmates, a guy named Bob Schwelm, uh, 6'2", at the time he was about 230, quick as a cat, and the guy was awesome. Mm -hmm. And he wound up actually as a freshman being the starting goalie that year. Um, and um, by the end of that year, um, uh, the, other, um, the other two freshman goalies 
um, were either had lost interest or moved on to something else. And then in, uh, in Bob's sophomore year, at, right at the end of his sophomore year, he fell in love with running and told, uh, told Coach Hershey that he was giving up soccer for, for essentially ma marath yeah. marathon runner. Marathon, wow. So really long distance runner. And, and I think Bob owns a, a track running store outside of Philadelphia here in, the, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the, one of these communities. Um, but my and there you were. Like so there I was. Yeah. So my junior year, I was a, star I was a starting goalie. And uh, there were some, some freshman folks who came in behind me. Um, one of my best friends who was a tremendous athlete, a guy named Doug Kaufman, um, he was a, a fullback um, who also tried out for goalie, and uh, he and I had a good competition. Mm -hmm. And um, I wound up being the starting goalie for two years. That's so it was, uh, it was really very fun. Yeah. And you talk about a very small world, um, and uh, not to jump to the end, but we'll get back to this <laughs> in a little while. So right now we're meeting you know, at, at, in Philadelphia because I'm here giving an exam for the American Board of Surgery. One of my closest friends who's a pediatric surgeon who sat on the pediatric surgery board with me, I've known for about, oh, 25 to 30 years now. We're, we're sitting down at dinner one day and uh, we're talking about where each other's from and where we went to college. Turns out he went to Haverford and we played soccer against each other. <laughs> You're kidding. And, oh and my goodness. we just figured that out sitting in this hotel having dinner together <laughs> like three um, years ago. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And along the way, where does the feeling of wanting to serve the country come in? Did it, is that early, middle, late? So that again is serendipity. Um, so my, really no one in my well, family. Well, serendipity is, for us, for the, for the United States of America. So, so I'll tell you I'm how this, our good fortune, it's our good fortune that. certainly that you I, did that. But sure. I, I will tell you how it, how it all happened. So um, my junior year of college, I met my wife. Uh, so Judy was a year ahead of me. Um, and she became an administrator at the college during my senior year. And then um, I, I actually had a difficult time getting into medical school. Uh, it took me three tries. Um, so I went and did a master's uh, in physiology here in Philadelphia um, at Hanneman, which is now closed, and Drexel took over the medical school part. Mm -hmm. But Judy moved from F&M, where she was administrator, to the Philadelphia College of Art. We eventually got engaged and, and, got, and got married just before I started medical school. So my second year of my graduate program, I got into a variety of medical schools, and uh, even though my dad volunteered to, to cover all the tuition for medical school and take care of things, you know, we wanted to start a life together, and as I looked financially, um, they all, you were a second lieutenant on active duty, uh, active reserve actually, you got a second lieutenant salary, it was tuition free, all your expenses are paid for, so that was the best way we could afford to get married, mm -hmm. so literally that's why I joined the military. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I knew I wanted to be still an orthopedic surgeon at that time, right. and the Army um, had uh, more training centers than the Navy or the Air Force did, and, and great surgical programs. So I requested the Army, got the, got the Army, and uh, that was the start of my Army career. I, I thought I would just do my time and get out, um, but as it turned out, uh, the Army was just as good, if not better, to me than, than I was to it, and it turned into a 25-year career. One of the many reasons why we wanted to, to talk to you, Kenny, because you do have such a, an, an amazing story to share. But talk a little bit about your experience at medical school. Um, so, so Uniform Services University uh, started um, 
I believe in 1979, either 1979 or 1980 was the first class. I'm not really sure. Maybe it was 1980 because I think I was the seventh class and I was class of 87. And in fact, in this very room where I was examining candidates today, a person I haven't seen since I graduated medical school was my co-examiner with me. <laughs> he was in the Air Force and he wound up being a general surgery residency director in Johnstone, Pennsylvania. Uh, Russ Dumeyer, and I haven't seen him since we graduated in 1987. And here we are in a hotel room examining candidates for the American Board of Surgery. We've got the record beat, though, that we've seen you. At, oh, absolutely. We go back to we go back to high school, <laughs> even elementary school, where, <laughs> where, where your mom was the supervisor on oh, the recess goodness. playground. I remember that. So wow. she was a lunch lady. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. So. Um, so we go way back. Yes, That's we right. do. Yeah. But uh, so me my memories of medical school were awesome. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Judy and I uh, started, uh, we had our first apartment in Rockville. Um, our second apartment was in Silver Spring. Um, and then we actually purchased a townhouse in Silver Spring with another couple in my medical school class, the Wilsons. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, Medical school was just awesome. We had uh, we had Katie when I was a second year medical student, um, so we started our family, and it was educationally best four years of my life. I worked really hard. I loved what I was doing, um, and it was during medical school that I, I moved away from orthopedics and um, really started looking in, into other avenues. Mm -hmm. So orthopedics is a very interesting specialty. It's very biomechanical. Um, and it's a very, very specific kind of engineering mixed with medicine. And as I went through my rotations, I was actually much more interested in the medicine side than I was in the bioengineering side. But I, I knew um, I still wanted to be a surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, I did a podcast called The Undifferentiated Medical Student. And you know when you walk into an operating room. If you walk into an operating room and there is no other place in the world you would rather be, you need to be a surgeon. I heard you say okay? that. Yeah, well, and, and that's the way it was yeah. when I walked into it. So I knew I yeah. wanted to be a surgeon. I just had to pick which specialty I wanted to be. Kenny, you know, it's funny that you say that. That's one of the things that I, I've shared with my own kids. And they used to share, I think I said this on one of the previous podcasts, that in any field, you have to project to the people that you're with that there's no place you'd rather be. Absolutely. Because it, if not, it it sends such a, a you know a, a negative message and you how can you not pour your heart into something? Right, if, right. That's, that's exactly right. Even, right. even candidates who are taking this exam now, so my own residents and my own students, mm. you know, they, you know they, they tell you how hard they're studying and that they're ready for this. Right. And my question to them, I said, are you having dreams about the exams and your patients? And if they say no, they're not studying hard enough. <laughs> you know, if they are, then they are totally involved it's kind yeah. of taken over uh -huh. that's not good on an everyday basis but for certain points in time you have to have that right. and you can only do that when you love what you're doing right right well we that's both a good point think that the classroom was our haven mm -hmm. you know we want it to be no other place right it has to be it has to be and, and and kids and patients they're perceptive they're intuitive and if you're right. projecting any Anything less than that, they pick up on that. That's exactly right. And it diminishes right. the experience and what yeah. it's supposed to be and what it's meant to be. So I, that's a great point that you made, and I'm uh, happy to see that that's you know it's becoming a worth theme in, it's a in the it, podcast. It is a you know, yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to say that Oceanside High School is great. Uh, you know, I worked there 30 
five years and the last years were some of my best years and the kids there are amazing and I you know since it's been a while since you've been back there I figured I'd report that to you well that is awesome that yeah. is great to hear yeah it's fantastic um, so Kenny so medical school and then Take us through so, graduating medical school and then what? So my senior year of medical school, I wound up uh, um, doing a rotation at Children's Hospital on the Pediatric Surgery Service, so National Children's Hospital. Um, the person who was Surgeon-in-Chief at the time was somebody named Judson Randolph, and uh, there was one particular faculty member um, who I worked with more than the others uh, named Kathy Anderson, and, uh, and Dr. Anderson turned out to be... Um, uh, really a seminal role model in my career. Um, I never had anyone involved in, in medicine or anything who demanded perfection and actually taught you how to achieve it. Um, and, uh, and Dr. Anderson and I have, have stayed in touch and, uh, uh, to this day and uh, one of my mentors. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Randolph is no longer with us, but definitely very instrumental in, in helping me get my career started. Uh, the other faculty at Children's, Dr. Kurt Newman, is now the CEO at National Children's, mm -hmm. and I stayed and I have stayed in touch with him. As you'll hear later on, my best friend is the uh, uh, surgeon in chief and vice president of surgical services down there, Dr. Tony Sandler, and when we'll get to we'll get to Tony in a little <laughs> while. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, um, the person who selected me for internship. Uh, it was a pediatric surgeon who was at Walter Reed at the time, so uh, Colonel Garcia. So Dr. Victor Garcia, who's still a practicing pediatric surgeon at Cincinnati Children's, um, was, um, was our program director at the time. And, uh, and a very fond memory of Dr. Garcia, and, and I'm actually going to get to tell the story next year when he comes out to visit Portland, is that um, uh, the, the Medical School Honor Society is called uh, AOA, Alpha Omega Alpha, and they'll... Uh, induct students and faculty members. So Dr. Garcia, um, uh, I believe, went to Penn and they did not have an AOA at Penn, so he was eligible to be inducted and he and I were inducted at the same ceremony. It was the end of my senior year mm -hmm. and he gave such a moving speech. It was incredible. It was about a, a, a little girl who was dying of cancer and what a struggle it was for the team to go in and he made it a point to bring residents in there every day and mm -hmm. And Judy was sitting next to me, and she, she just gives me a punch in the arm, and she says, you better never disappoint that man. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning of my residency. Um, so, um, so I started at Walter Reed. Um, and so after four years in Bethesda, um, I became a general surgery resident in Washington, D.C. Um, so we stayed in the area. We moved, uh, we moved to a different location. We moved to Burtonsville, uh, Maryland, and we lived... Um, in Burtonsville for the next five years. How did uh, Judy and the girls um, acclimate to each of the moves? I mean, there was a number of moves that you made during so, your career. So the the moves to different cities and across countries were a little more challenging. The moves while I was still training were pretty easy mm -hmm. um, because they were they were very mainly young. in the same location. They were all very okay. young. Right. Um, so uh, as I said, Katie was born when I was a second year medical student. Uh, Beth was born my first month of internship, and Samantha was born when I was a third-year resident. Mm -hmm. So when we left Walter Reed, we, we had, uh, our family was, uh, was formed. Right. Um, you know, you talked before about those who were uh, inspiring to you. Mm -hmm. you. You mentioned a couple mm -hmm. of them. Right. Uh, I'm sure that there were others throughout your career 
oh, that uh, are too a many. source of inspiration. Absolutely. That helped to carve the path that you took over the years. So, um, absolutely. So, to, to, there were two ind three individuals specifically during my residency. So, the chief of surgery at Walter Reed was, uh, was Dr. Juan Diavis. He's no longer with us. Um, but uh, eventually, um, I wound up uh, essentially doing the job that he did out at Madigan on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, watching Dr. Diavis kind of navigate the Department of Surgery was, uh, was entertaining to say the least. Um, Dr. David Jakes, who became my program director when I was a chief resident, uh, is my closest mentor to, to this day. I speak with Dr. Jakes about every, every three, four months, um, and he just uh, retired to Lewis, Delaware. Um, and then Dr. Rick Pearl, uh, who uh, lives in Peoria. As Rick tells folks, he trained me twice because he didn't get it right the first time. <laughs> so Rick was faculty at Walter Reed, and then later on when I wound up going to Toronto for my pediatric surgery training, uh, that was Rick's first retirement job up in Toronto. So he actually mm -hmm. was my program director in Toronto for a year. What created the change from orthopedic, well, orthopedic <laughs> surgery to pediatric. I know you, you said you moved in that direction. So, so we, I did move in th that direction as a, as a senior in medical school, but then when my internship, I actually did an elective on Dr. Garcia's service, and all my, my co-residents said, you're doing an elective on pediatric surgery when you can be doing something far easier. But I was just enthralled with the, with the pathology, with the patients, how you could fix things from birth and then give somebody a normal life. I mean, that's just... That, that blows your mind away. So I became very interested and really focused the rest of my residency toward getting into pediatric mm -hmm. surgery. It must be a great feeling. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a good feeling mm -hmm. to heal an adult, obviously, mm -hmm. but you're almost launching a correct life for it. Well, you are, and there's person. no and more satisfying feeling yeah, in the world. Amazing. It's amazing. It's truly a satisfying yeah. profession. Kenny, Richie and I mm -hmm. uh, obviously did mm -hmm. some research to prepare for today. And one of the things that we uh, came across was a story that you shared uh, about um, surgery that you performed on a, a newborn. And then years later, when she got married, you heard from her? Oh, so I, I yes. So um, m many pediatric surgeons have a particular favorite operation, and I'm no different. So for me, it's, it's a congenital anomaly called a tracheoesophageal fistula. And... Mm -hmm. um, it's where the esophagus doesn't form from mouth to stomach, it's in discontinuity, mm -hmm. and a portion of the esophagus winds up going into the trachea as opposed to going down distally. So as a newborn, you have to disconnect the fistula from the esophagus to the trachea, repair the trachea, mm -hmm. and then repair the esophagus. And when it goes great, first time, there's nothing more satisfying. and. Uh, if you can't do that for a variety of reasons, they're very, very challenging patients. So this is, uh, this is somebody I fixed early in my career, and I wound up getting a card from them. Uh, you know, it was a fascinating that their that their mom remembered me, and then when I thought about my own kids, I'm like, you know, if I had a kid like that, I'd probably remember right. exactly who took care exactly. of the of my baby. You know. I'm sure that there are other stories like that that you can share, and perhaps we can come back to those. I want to go back to something that you said before. You talked about those uh, who were inspirational to you. Mm -hmm. Do you find um, aspects of what they brought to the relationship with you 
Um, do you recognize some of those aspects in yourself? Can you identify with some of those? Are? So it's very interesting. So, so I had this conversation with one of those people I just mentioned, Rick Pearl, and when I graduated, you know, Walter Reed, as I was leaving, uh, I bought Rick a bottle of scotch, and I said, I can't thank you enough. And he said, you don't have to thank me, just what we did for you, you just do for somebody else. And that's more thanks than enough. And that's how I've tried to go about the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and that's what I try and teach my faculty and residents now, same, same principle. Mm -hmm. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Ken. Uh, the, the inspiring stories. Um, what other sources of inspiration do you find? Um, I know that those people were instrumental in, in how they inspired you, but... Um, so there are certain, certain things that have happened, you know, throughout, throughout my career, and, and there's one story that's more inspirational than anything, any other story pales, not everything else pales in comparison to mm -hmm. it, and we'll kind of get get to this after we finish my training and get get you know into yeah. deployments. But when you see a group of essentially high school graduates, 18, 19 year olds, um, who are part of a unit and they go off to war to fight, mm -hmm. um, they become professional soldiers. And what do I mean by a professional soldier? Okay, well, you can be in a deadly, deadly firefight and have the enemy try and trick you, do everything they can to kill you and all your friends, and then it, when the battle is won and the bullets stop flying, you know, and the injured are cleared off the battlefield, the person who just tried to kill you, I've witnessed on many occasions, some 18-year-old kid just bring them in for medical care, and I mean, it was a deadly battle mm -hmm. two hours ago. And to watch literally just kids be able to do that, it just it takes you to a different world and a different realm. And, um, uh, you know, taking care of the American soldier is the most inspirational thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And what, had, what was the timeline there from in the Army, medical school, when were you... So we're, we're fast forwarding to get to that point. Um, okay. Almost uh, 15, 16 years. All right. So, so we still have a lot of ground yeah, to cover. Yeah, so, okay. Let's, so let's, let's back let's, it up. Let's, All right. Let's put it in reverse. Then. Okay. Let's go back. Um, so when I, um, uh, like, like I said, I had a little difficulty getting into medical school. I had even more trouble getting a pediatric surgery fellowship. So I didn't match when I was a fourth-year resident or a fifth-year resident. So the Army sent me on an operational tour to Clean, Texas. So Fort Hood uh, is a very interesting place. Um, I remember um, getting my welcome packet from Fort Hood, and it said, Welcome to Fort Hood. Uh, we're as large as the country of Switzerland. And uh, it's pretty close. Uh -huh. It really is pretty close. Um, at the time, Fort Hood was a three-division um, post. It had over 100,000 active-duty troops, and the number of retirees in the area uh, were extensive. So as a general surgeon, I had a very, very busy general surgery practice for two years. Um, and I learned to, to really cut my teeth in the operating room, um, learned to do things by myself. And um, it was a great, great, great professional experience. Um, Is solely soldiers you're operating on? No. So, so the Army um, takes care of soldiers and, and dependents. So spouses, children, and then all retirees as mm -hmm. well. So it's a full range of, right. uh, of, of ages that, uh, 
that we took care of at the time. Now things have changed a little bit since then, um, but uh, but at least at the time we took care of everybody. And when when we think of surgery in the civilian world, we think of knee doctors, shoulder doctors, hip doctors. What were you doing? All types of surgery? No, I was a general surgeon at the time, okay. so I really wasn't doing any orthopedic surgery. So uh, mainly uh, chest and abdomen at the time. Okay. Kenny, can you describe the very first operation that you performed and, and what you must have been feeling at that point? Or did you feel that you were so well-trained that you were able to get through it? So I will tell you, when I was an intern, the very first operation I did was a lymph node biopsy to rule out Hodgkin's lymphoma on a 28-year-old. And the chief resident who took me through it was a guy named Dave Elliott, who eventually came to work, work for me at Madigan. Um, I honestly don't remember the first operation I did as an attending at Fort Hood. Um, I remember some cases that I did that were very extensive, but I don't remember the first one. You, you've been very detailed on everything that you're sharing with us today. Yeah. Are you saying that um, you were like just so much in a zone that you don't remember it, or it's just... Well, the very first one, I mean, must have been a fairly routine case that okay. went well. Um, you know, as, as I've done a lot of operations over the years, mm -hmm. the ones that were particularly challenging um, and, and the one where patients have kept in, in close contact with me over the years, you know, I remember mm -hmm. those patients really well. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you, I, I can't remember um, every hernia I've fixed or every appendix I've taken out or every gallbladder I've taken out, et cetera. I just thought maybe with the first one, taking that first step out of the blocks, being a surgeon. You know, you think, I just can't remember. <laughs> I just can't remember. I do have it written down somewhere, though. I have a full operative log of my whole career, so. Wow. Um, what else do we want? What's the next part of your career? So the next part of my about? career is uh, I tried to get into pediatric surgery a couple of times. While I was at Fort Hood, I still kept applying. And then my second year at Fort Hood, um, Again, serendipity happened. Um, I, uh, I had re-entered the match um, to match in pediatric surgery, and I was about to go on a, an extensive interview trail again. What does the match mean? So what, I'm, what the match is, is that programs that are verified programs by the uh, ACGME, the, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, um, are listed with a separate organization called the National Resident Matching Program. So it's a second, separate organization that truly runs the application process and uh, um, the candidates will then give a rank list, the programs will give a rank list and there is a computerized match mm -hmm. to, um, to select where, where you go. Um, at that time I was about to enter that process and I got a phone call out of the blue, I was operating um, I was doing a cholecystectomy um, laparoscopically, uh, and the, uh, um, I got a call that came through to me uh, in the operating room, and uh, the OR nurse said, there's a Dr. Wesson on the phone from Canada. So I actually stopped what I was doing. It was a very safe part of the operation. <laughs> Um, so I went to the phone, and uh, so Dave Weston's a pediatric surgeon who was the program director in Toronto, uh, and uh, he told me the two things that a candidate never wants to hear, um, uh, or actually I should say he told me two things, and one is what a candidate never wants to hear, and the other um, basically threw me into a state of elation mm -hmm. that I was surprised I was able to finish <laughs> my case. 
So he told me that if I wanted to withdraw from the match, they would just take me in Toronto and I wouldn't even have to go through the interview process. And then he said, the reason that they're doing that is they're expanding their program by one resident and they actually had ranked me second a couple of years in a row. Wow. And unless you're ranked first, you stand a chance of not matching. So I could have beaten out a hundred other people or 50 mm -hmm. or whatever who interviewed there, but it didn't matter because nobody had ranked me first wherever I had gone. So this was, this was my ticket to get trained in pediatric surgery. And it was, uh, uh, again, a serendipity. And the way this happened was they were expanding their program and the person that they had already selected through the match the year before was a guy named Anthony Sandler, who was a resident in, in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they called Anthony, because Anthony would have had gone through as a, a lone fellow, which means he'd have done every case he wanted to. Mm -hmm. And they asked him if he would object to having a partner or a second fellow there. And um, they had done these types of things in the past, and people have said yes or no or whatever they want to do. But Anthony said, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a partner. How could I possibly say no right, yeah. to having a partner? And uh, that was the beginning of a, a lifelong friendship, and I hadn't even met him yet. Uh -huh. And um, uh, so fast forward, we start, and then there's a great story that Anthony and I both tell. Um, our first day together was very rocky. Um, in that uh, I had my, uh, my, my work visa uh, on my Army NATO orders, um, and Anthony had trouble getting his, uh, not his visa, but his license from Ontario. Mm -hmm. And uh, because he couldn't be licensed, I had to go um, basically cover both of our assignments. Um, so he was working, but he, he couldn't be the primary surgeon. So. Mm -hmm. um, as he puts it, I went to help him do a central line um, to, to show him how to do it. Um, and um, uh, basically, I had to go then run to the next room that was supposed to be his assigned room. Um, and I just said, you know, can you dictate this case? No. And then I ran out of the room. And normally that's something that an attending would say to an intern, not right. two fellows right. would say to right. each other. Right. So he thought I was the biggest jerk in the entire universe. <laughs> and, and I probably was at the time. But, um, as, um, but he didn't know where I was going. Mm -hmm. And I was going into the boss's room to help with a, a pectus procedure, which is a, kind of a caved-in chest, and we have an operation to elevate it. And he was supposed to be in that room, but he couldn't be in that room because he didn't get his license on time. And... Uh, so he didn't know that I was actually covering for him in that room. Um, and then, so he came to me the, the next day um, and uh, he basically said, look, we have to clear the air if we're going to be working together. And then I didn't realize what I, you know, how I right. came across right. and I apologized. And then he hadn't realized that I was, the reason I was doing that was right. to run to cover him. Uh -huh. And that was the last time we ever had a disagreement. Um, we have been close family friends um, with the Sandlers. Um, we vacationed with the Sandlers, and it's, uh, I would say he's my, he's my closest friend in the pediatric surgery world mm -hmm. to this date. And um, uh, he's, uh, he'll be upset that I didn't drive down to have dinner with him in D.C. <laughs> and I stayed up here talking to you guys in Philadelphia. Well, you got mentioned, though. So oh, you, yeah. You oh. Got Kenny, just to tell us, at this point in your career, um, 
Judy and the girls. Just so Toronto was a so Toronto was a challenge for for Judy. So mm -hmm. um, so the girls went up to Toronto on on educational visas. So mm -hmm. they were all going to school. Well, actually, Samantha was still um, pre kindergarten um, when we started up there, but. Uh, um, Katie was, I think, either fourth or fifth grade, and Beth was like around second grade when we when we started. But Judy was on a visitor's visa, um, so she couldn't work. Mm -hmm. So she had been literally working continuously odd jobs. She was a preschool teacher in Texas um, for a while, and uh, when we were in D.C., um, she had done a, a variety of things, um, uh, and not being able to do anything, just being, you know stay at home was was a little bit difficult mm -hmm. and so those two years were a bit challenging and uh, um, but they were professionally the most rewarding two years of my I learned more in those two years than I could ever imagine um, but I was physically exhausted I mean Judy raised the girls by herself mm -hmm. for two years mm -hmm. even when we had a family outing I'd be asleep or you know in the car or you know sleepwalking somewhere sure. with them it was that was a challenging two years but, uh, but we got through it, and um, then uh, we got assigned to Madigan Army Medical Center, uh, which was also a very serendipitous um, assignment. That's, that's the fourth time, I think, that and, you've referenced that during the... Uh, uh, well, what happened was, is I was um, as I was finishing my fellowship in Toronto, uh, Dr. Jakes, who I mentioned previously, was the consultant to the Surgeon General and did assignments. And he essentially told me that there was no spot that needed a pediatric surgeon. Mm -hmm. So he actually gave me carte blanche to call each of the different medical centers and talk with the chiefs there and see where the best fit would be long term. Mm -hmm. And essentially nobody wanted me, except when I called Madigan, I spoke to a, a surgical oncologist who was the program director and chief of general surgery, a guy named Bill Williard. Now, uh, he told me that... They had a pediatric surgeon um, whose name was Randy Holland, so they didn't need me that year, but Dr. Holland was due to get out in another year. And so Dr. Williard said, if you're willing to come here and do general surgery for a year and just cover Dr. Holland when he's out of town um, and also be my assistant program director of the residency and start our surgical lab because we want to extend the residency from five to six years, mm -hmm. then you're the perfect person. So I was actually able to leave my fellowship and start a lab at Madigan Army Medical Center, so actually start the science part of my career as an attending, which not many people give, have that opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to apply for any grants because it was a military site with a research budget. So I had my own funding to do things, mm -hmm. and I had an entire lab run by outstanding scientists who could guide me and help me. And we started rotating a resident in the lab um, every year and expanded the program. And then I became the, the assistant uh, and then associate program director under Dr. Williard's guidance. Within a year, um, I was then the only pediatric surgeon when Dr. Holland left in that region. Mm -hmm. And over the next five years, I became one of only two pediatric surgeons in the entire Army and one of four in the Department of Defense. So I was wow. getting patients from all over the Pacific Northwest and, mm -hmm. and all over the world. And... Then Dr. Williard um, uh, retired, mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, a bit unexpected, but not unusual, and he retired uh, in the 99-2000 academic year. Um, so in um, 
uh, in that year, I became the general surgery residency director at Madigan and started training residents to be surgeons, um, which was a brand new um, uh, thing for me. I always loved teaching residents, and uh, I had about two and a half years preparation working with Dr. Williard, you know, leading up to that point. Um, but then after I became the residency director, the world changed, right. both in residency training uh, and then in global terrorism. Right. Uh, and uh, it was, um, uh, things became different and life was never the same again. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a little experience taking care of wartime injuries when I was a resident. So I was a senior resident, a fourth year resident during the, the, the Gulf War. And uh, by the time patients got back to Walter Reed, they were generally resuscitated, um, had their life-threatening problems uh, cured, but we had to deal with a lot of secondary issues back at Walter Reed. So um, that was part of my training. I but gotta, I, I got to stop you here because to me, like from everything you say, I just, how do you do it? I, I, I hate to sound like a little kid asking uh, an, an older person, you know, the question, but just listening to you talk about the areas you've been, the work you've done, how do you handle that? Um, um, this is a question I didn't plan on asking, but how do you handle that emotionally? How do you handle that, you know, the intensity of what you're doing? It seems like it's, it's a tremendous, I mean, you, you keep saying serendipity, meaning you're lucky to have the movement that you had in your career. I keep thinking, that's amazing. Like, how do you keep doing it? Like, what's your drive or... You have to compartmentalize. No you do. You absolutely must compartmentalize. Right. And, you know, that's when you're dealing with, with a, a trauma patient who's been, uh, had a devastating, penetrating trauma, you have just got to go from step one to step two to step three. You have to have, you have to be right. well trained to have the sequence in your mind and you right. have got to compartmentalize. Right. Mm -hmm. You need to stop the bleeding first. Then you then you go on to the next step right. and then the next step and the next step right. and that's really dealing with a congenital anomaly who a baby who have, has multiple anomalies. Right. It's the same thing. Is that something that evolved for you, or did you know that and sense that intuitively that that's the way because it needs to be? Obviously, I, everybody can't do what you do. It's uh, I think some of it's intuitive, mm -hmm. um, and you figure that out as a resident. So mm -hmm. as a general surgery resident. Um, if you don't do that, you really don't succeed. Right. Um, you have to learn to multitask. You have to learn to compartmentalize. And some people do it better than others. Um, and I've been lucky that uh, I've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. Kenny, I, I don't want us to fast forward too much, but I, I think that we um, let's let's talk about when it was that you began to uh, think about your decision to go to the Middle East. So, as, how, how far so, so we're, we're, we're right there. We're so right we're, there. we're right there now. Okay. So I became program director, and I started training residents uh, in general surgery. Um, and then, you know, 9-11 happens. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and I was, I had been a program director for about uh, a year and a half, two years at that point. And instantaneously, and when I say instantaneously, by Christmas time, um, we had uh, mobilized a lot of our faculty to be on forward surgical teams, to go to, to combat support hospitals, and we're really looking at um, uh, uh, identifying that, you know, Afghanistan might have been a focus for this, uh, mm -hmm. 
for this type of type of an event. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there was um, I think it was an earthquake in Central America, so we lost another forward surgical team. So our faculty were really down um, in numbers. So we started hiring civilians back to bolster our faculty, which which turned out to be a great model, mm-hmm. and we kept the residency going at that point mm-hmm. in time. Um, then. Um, uh, Two years fast forward, we went into Iraq, and uh, by now I'm getting letters from from all my former graduates, you know, who've who've now been to Iraq, they've been to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the training, and wow. I'm like everyone I've trained has been to the war. All my faculty have, have have gone and served, and I haven't done anything yet. Um, and I had previously. Well, let's, what do you mean you didn't? Let's stop right there. Yeah, I mean, you train them. You haven't been there yet, but I wouldn't say so, you haven't done anything. But you have to understand that you have to understand the feeling yeah. is that you're not participating right. if you haven't been, despite what you're doing. Right. And I had volunteered on two previous occasions to go, and was told you're the residency director. I was now the chief of surgery there. You know, we, we need you to keep the doors open here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it turns out that in 2005. Um, a, f- a friend of mine who was actually an OBGYN doc became the operations um, uh, staff uh, colonel in San Antonio um, for, for personnel. And he, um, he worked out a, a plan um, to deploy me, and actually I was the first surgeon uh, to be deployed um, who submitted a plan to the ACGME so I wouldn't lose my job as residency director. Mm-hmm. So I was supposed to go on a 90-day deployment and then come back, and we had a plan for someone to cover me. And uh, some program directors had deployed before, but you, a you little bit under the... plan? Uh, no, actually a guy named Bob Ricks did, but I was the first one on it. Mm-hmm. But folks who had gone before me who were program directors kind of went a little under the radar. Nobody really knew they were gone type of thing. But we did this officially so program directors could go. So I, I, um, I went to Fort um, Bliss for my training. Um, what week, kind, what week, kind of training? Um, so just pre-deployment training. Oh, okay. You go through a variety of protocols. Uh, you, you, know, you do your weapons training, you, you, you know, a variety of military okay. things before you go deploy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went there the week before Christmas, um, 2004. Um, flew out um, December 31st. Um, or actually December 30th, we flew out, went to uh, Frankfurt, um, and then December 31st, um, uh, late in the evening, flew out, actually flew over Baghdad on our way to Kuwait on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, you could see um, a lot of light in the sky, let's put mm-hmm. it that way, flying right. over it. And the pilot said, don't worry, we're high enough, not a problem. Um, but, uh, but people were pretty nervous. Um, so we landed in Kuwait, um, which, which was uh, uh, Camp Doha, which was a stopover for um, typically up to a week or two. But I was backfilling as a surgeon, so, so I was there for a day and then flew up to, uh, to Camp Victory. I landed uh, New Year's, uh, New Year's uh, Day night, so the night of the first uh, into the morning of the second. It was literally pitch black. I'm on a tarmac. I couldn't see 10 feet in front of me. That's how dark it was. Um, and the first thing you know when you deploy, you don't start putting flashlights all over the place because yeah, right, you have no right. idea who's looking right, or where, right, right. when you become a target. And uh, 
I, I, you know, you can hear the explosions all around um, because that's just the way it was. They weren't that close, but you could still hear them and you feel the ground shake. And you're now saying to yourself, how in the world did I get here? You know, and uh, so um, turns out some Air Force sergeants saw me. I don't know how he did. I was a full colonel at the time, so brought me back to their little VIP tent where I waited for my helicopter to fly me uh, fly me into the uh, into the international zone. Which was how far from there? Uh, it was about a five-minute helicopter ride, but it's uh, they had stopped doing ground transports. Mm-hmm. Um, that was called Route Irish at the time, and, and that was basically IED Alley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just was not safe for right. even in armored vehicles to do that. So, so at the time I was there, it was it was helicopter trips uh, to get from the airport into the uh, to the hospital. So, Kenny, to go back to what you said before, you're there because you you wanted to be there. You oh, felt, you oh felt, yeah, you felt absolutely. The you felt the need. It was drawing you there. You absolutely. To be there. Right. How was? Uh, we want yeah, to ask. So my first, so my first week was fairly. Well, hold on. I think Rich and I want to ask a question what? about the decision, the right. thought process. Okay. Because, like, you have the decision. You feel that this is, I pretty much have to do this. Yeah. It's inside of me. But then you have a, a wife and three daughters. So how does, how do you do that? Like, where's their input? Is there? So they, they so Judy knew that I had volunteered right. before, and they knew this was going to be inevitable. They uh-huh. saw every one of our friends, faculty, mm-hmm. Um, they just knew this was inevitable, and uh, um, it. Um, I won't say it was easy because I know it was extremely difficult. Right. Um, I probably didn't appreciate how difficult it was at the time. Um, uh, Katie was uh, was Katie a senior in college then? Um, I can't remember um, where she was. I should remember. Um, but it was either the first or second point when she was a senior in college. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think she was a senior the second deployment, not the first. I think the girls were all in uh, either in high school or middle school at this point in time. Um, so it was uh, it was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the biggest impact they had is that I wasn't there for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I was still in the mm-hmm. States, but in El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's when it hit them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it was it was a challenge, I'm sure, and I probably don't even know the half of it. And I know it was a challenge um, for uh, my dad, um, and uh, I think Judy actually sent one of my daughters out to spend some time with my dad, mm-hmm. just because he was that distraught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's you know it takes its toll. Mm-hmm. What type of contact did your family have with you when you were overseas? So that, we're going to get to the, okay. I guess, the fifth serendipity reference in, okay. a, in a little bit. But uh, I wound up, and I'll tell you how this happened, having a sat phone so I could really call Judy. Uh-huh. Not, not often, but every now and then. But we had good internet, so mm-hmm. it was mainly an email mm-hmm. and internet. Mm-hmm. So, so my I, first I interrupt, week. Yeah, I interrupted so you. So my, my first so. week, um, it was busy. There were a lot of traumas. I was mm-hmm. doing, doing good surgery. Uh, things that people would never expect to do in a million years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, January 12th happened. So that was our first mass casualty exercise. And uh, it was an ice factory explosion. And we had a variety of people who were uh, injured by the explosion, but there, there was chlorine gas emitted from the ice factory. So there were several, in, several folks with inhalation injuries that um, 
took us a little bit to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, from a distance, I watched how the triage was done. And this combat support hospital um, was not as prepared as, as it should have been to deal with that right up front. And so the commander, a guy named Casper Jones, um, uh, a fantastic commander, um, and uh, he, he uh, called me into the office and um, he asked me to be the deputy commander, that he wanted to replace his deputy commander for clinical services, and he asked me to do that. And that's usually a year-long deployment. So I said, no, I can help you, but I'm happy keeping my, uh, mm -hmm. my current location. And things were beginning to really heat up, okay? And January 31st that year, 2005, were the first free elections in Iraq. And uh, Al-Qaeda, the attacks were coming leading up to the elections, more frequent and more frequent mm -hmm. and more frequent. And um, we, we really had gotten to the point almost at the election where we, we really needed a new deputy commander. And the regional general, uh, General Granger, called me into his office and just made me an offer I really couldn't refuse. Um, so I became uh, the deputy commander of the 86th Combat Support Hospital. Um, and between January and March, um, that place, and not due to me, due to the great people who were there, became what I would consider one of the greatest trauma hospitals uh, in the history of modern warfare. We were that year, 2005, the busiest uh, U.S. Uh, combat hospital since World War II. So the, um, over the next uh, two months, we really became a highly functional uh, trauma center. And on uh, March 12th, uh, the, some people may remember uh, a cement truck was driven into the Sheridan Hotel mm -hmm. in Baghdad. Mm -hmm. um, we took uh, 54 casualties from that and we never even had a call in the backup team. Didn't call a mass casualty. We just ran the hospital, took care of all 54 patients. I How think long did that doing, take? Um, it took us about 12 hours, you know, as they were triaged and came in. We wound up doing about 28 operations that day. And we just had an awesome team. And uh, it just so happened that the Surgeon General at the time, uh, Kevin Kiley, was visiting us and witnessed this that day. Um, and, I, and I think that, um, not to belabor the point, but I'll change the word, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. How's that, uh, Richie? Mm -hmm. um, I wound up winning later that year after I had been back the, uh, the Malone Award for the outstanding uh, senior uh, colonel physician in the army, and I think that day had a lot to do with it. I'm sure. Um, so, because I was the deputy commander, um, my 90-day window just kind of came and went, and I had to wait till they found a suitable replacement. That was the the deal we I made with General mm -hmm. Granger. So I was there for a little over five months. Came back in May, and um, resumed my life back at Madigan as the the chief of surgery and as the program director. You, you seem. Um, to handle everything so well and certainly today we also hear a lot about post-traumatic stress syndrome how do you do that how do you go from a period where for five months you've been seeing some very difficult situations and um, and then you're back in the United States what's that transition feeling like and how does one do that? So in, in the Army Medical Corps, especially amongst the cadre of surgeons, it really helps to have people who have been through what you've been through and gone through it with you. 
to talk to. Um, uh, one of my mentors in the Army, he was actually the, uh, uh, the consultant to the Surgeon General at the time I deployed, was a fellow named uh, Steve Hatz. Uh, Steve was uh, in El Paso uh, at the time, and uh, uh, he was uh, chief at William Beaumont Army Medical Center. And I really leaned on Steve a lot. You know, I would call him, I'd speak to him about things. And um, he really had a great attitude. And, and I used to think about the words that came out of his mouth. And, you know, he said, you know, you, what you've been through, nobody can really understand unless they've been through it as well. So, you know, those are the people you have to lean mm -hmm. on and you have to talk to. And, and I've been very, very fortunate and that I've had great support. And it doesn't mean that it's always been easy, but, uh, but it's dealable. I know that uh, Richie asked a question before to which you responded that you have to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. And any surgical procedure requires the utmost concentration and, mm -hmm. and focus. But with everything else going on around you, especially with, you know, with what you just described, it's really hard to comprehend for me anyway that you were able to, to get through 12 hours, at least that particular situation that you uh, talked about a few minutes ago. It's, I, I don't know how. So that's actually easier for me than the phone call I got on my trip home. So when I was coming back home, I, you go through Fort Bliss, and then I was at a stopover in Salt Lake City, and I told, you know, I called Judy just to say, hey, I'm going to be home a few days early. No. And, and then, then Judy responds with, okay. I just got to tell you, you need to know everyone's okay. So then you obviously know the shoe's going to foot. I'm like, what happened? So Katie actually was, I think, either a senior or junior in high school. And uh, she flipped my Toyota 4Runner oh from God. the right lane on I-90 all the way across, across the median, almost oh into goodness. the ongoing. So, And uh, I can't believe she was okay. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And... Uh, uh, she was she was out going to a concert uh, mm -hmm. with her boyfriend, and uh, at that point I was so happy to be home, you know. <laughs> yeah. It didn't even didn't even matter as long as everyone was okay. Right. And uh, so we wound up getting um, a new car out of that deal, <laughs> but it was uh, um, it just uh, just amazing. Mm -hmm. So that had happened I guess a couple of days earlier, um, but uh, so that of course took me days to, to get over. Right, that would right. take me days to get over today now. Right, right. Um, you know, going to, to the war and doing that pales in comparison to when something's, you know. Your own child. Uh, and, and, I, and now yes. I appreciate what my dad was going through. Right. So, mm -hmm. so if my daughter was going to be deployed, mm -hmm. they're much tougher mm -hmm. than, than me going. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I actually have had that conversation with Steve Hatz because his son has been deployed many times mm -hmm. as an infantry uh, soldier. Kenny, I read somewhere that uh, for the people who are in your position to go on a tour of duty is, is one thing, but it's very rare for somebody to go back for a second tour of duty. So it's uh, not rare. Unfortunately, it's very common, and that's one of the toughest things we, we had to do is we're trying to retain um, medical officers, mm -hmm. and surgeons are going back two, three, four. I've had residents who've deployed six or seven times. I thought I read that. People in your position, for the most part, did not go back. So no, that, that's back. that's not true. Oh. No, no, no. Surgeons, okay. surgeons keep rotating back and keep rotating. About every eighteen months is mm -hmm. a deployment somewhere else. So if mm -hmm. you stay in long enough, you're going to do multiple deployments. Mm -hmm. So how long a, a period of time was there between your first and your second? 
tour of duty. Two years. So mm -hmm. it was actually, I had put my paperwork to get out in uh, 2007. Um, and uh, the consultant at the time, Steve, Steve had his replacement, was a guy named Russ Martin, terrific general surgeon and trauma surgeon and a really nice guy. And he called me up and he said, and this was at the time surgeons were being stop lost, meaning they weren't letting you get out under certain circumstances. And he calls me up and he says, uh, Kenny, I want to make an offer you can't refuse. And uh, I said, okay, Russ, what is it? He says, I have a surgeon in Afghanistan who's got a family emergency. Um, he needs to come back and, and he's probably going to need to stay back. Um, will you finish his tour for him? And uh, I said, Russ, you know, I'm getting out. He says, well, you know, these stop losses are going on. And he says, I guarantee you, if you, if you extend, you won't get stop lost. And uh, I said, fine, no problem. So that was, uh, that was my second deployment. And uh, that was very different than the first deployment. How so? So um, before I went to Afghanistan, a friend of mine who's no longer with us was the commander at Madigan, a guy named Tom Deal. And he said, Ken, I want to give you one piece of advice. And if you think about it this way, you'll have no problem. You're from New York. Afghanistan is just like New York City 10,000 years ago. Gosh. <laughs> and you know what? Probably pretty true. Pretty true. So um, Iraq was built up. We were, in a, we were in, a, in, a, in a hospital. We had basically at our disposal all modern medical equipment. Even if you were deployed out uh, uh, into, you know, away from the big cities, uh, you could get, get back to the, to the big cities and the transport system was developed. Afghanistan was totally different. Mm -hmm. It is rough terrain. Uh, my, uh, my, my forward operating base was in the mountains at 7,000 feet, and we were close to, to nothing. Uh, if helicopter was the only way in or out of there, and um, uh, it was the most austere environment mm -hmm. I, I have been in. Um, so needless to say, everything was quiet, 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 until it wasn't quiet. So mm -hmm. in my time there, we had two real busy nights, and that was about it. Otherwise, it was... It was pretty quiet, reading a lot of books, mm -hmm. went to the gym twice a day, that type of thing. Um, and then when there was an event, there was an event, and that fortunately only happened twice while I was there. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was in Baghdad, we were cons every single day we were operating, it was just constant. Um, the number of casualties was incredible at that time. Mm -hmm. um, that was just the, the height of that conflict. You know, a lot of... Uh Movies try to depict what it is that you went through and experienced. Accurate or what you experienced was uh, nowhere close to what it depends. We, it depends that you know that you mentioned about how you do that. I try and avoid watching those movies mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. So mm -hmm. I'm probably not the best person to mm -hmm. to tell you that. Mm -hmm. It would bring, it would evoke a lot of memories and oh you know emotions. I don't know I just I, I guess so I just I just can't do it. I right. I can watch the World War Two movies and. I will tell you that what we had to go through and what the soldiers now is nothing compared to, you know, the, what folks had to right. do uh -huh. in Europe and in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So if anyone ever feels sorry for themselves, you know, look at look at what, uh, you know, look at what our parents and grandparents did mm -hmm. during World War II. That was, yeah. uh, we the you know the injuries are are just as bad, but how you had to go through it was um, mm -hmm. quite different. Andy, so let's, we don't want to uh, diminish the experience that you had by fast forwarding, but at this point, 
let's, you, you were there for four or five months? So I was in Afghanistan about four months, um, and uh, then I came back, and then, um, then it was the last year. I had already signed uh, with uh, Children's of Omaha, mm -hmm. and uh, was in the last year. Um, mm -hmm. So I turned over the, um, uh, the chief of surgery job, and I had already turned over the residency job um, when I deployed to Afghanistan. So I was just a pediatric surgeon for the last uh, six, eight months uh, before we moved. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a nice break. I kind of, I'm going to ask you to hold your modesty. Okay. Because I feel like I'm in the presence of like a sports hero. Just, I'm only using that as an analogy of feeling like a little kid looking at someone who, when we think of the soldier, we think of America's greatest citizen. And then we think of people who fight for our liberty. And we think of now the doctor who is also... I mean, domestically, one of our greatest citizens, and you're both, you know, you, you're a person who um, provided us with, with liberty as a soldier, as a doctor, and you've done so much great work. I really, you know, you're a really special person, and I, I'm so really, I, I don't want to, I don't know if we were going to wrap up this interview at this <laughs> point, but I really want to say that I, I feel like I'm in the presence for I haven't been in the presence of greatness too many times in my life, and it's exactly how I feel right what, now. What Richard, and it bef I'm, I'm trying to get it all done before I start crying a little bit right here, because I really feel that. It's serendipitous for us, okay, <laughs> to have had this opportunity yeah. to be with you, Kenya. But before we wrap I'm it up... I'm still the same guy you used to smoke <laughs> on the basketball court. <laughs> Can you just talk about where you are today and then project a, you know, a year from now to where you see yourself, you know? So um, uh, we'll fast forward really quickly to today. Mm -hmm. um, when I got out of the Army, I started a pediatric surgery fellowship in Omaha, and um, I was fortunate enough to get selected to be a director of the American Board of Surgery. Um, and at that time, um, we were at a director's meeting, and it's now like lore. I was sitting between the chair in Nebraska and the chair in Oregon, and the chair in Oregon recruited me away from the chair in Nebraska, <laughs> and so I went to Oregon. Mm -hmm. And um, um, and I became the surgeon in chief of the Children's Hospital uh, and at Dornbecker Children's Hospital at Oregon Health and Science University. And uh, through great tragedy, um, uh, you never expect certain opportunities to arise. So our dean had a, a tragic death uh, in August of uh, uh, as accident in August of September 2016, and died. In, uh, shortly thereafter and mm. my boss uh, John Hunter um, another one of my, my great mentors and friends became the interim dean and I became the interim chair um, and I held that position um, up until just just recently several months ago um, went through a national search and became the chair at OHSU and actually just signed my my contract last week so that that's where I'm at right now I'm the chair of surgery at Oregon Health and Science University um, I'm a retired colonel, and I'm trying to keep my Army ties alive in that uh, at OHSU, we actually uh, um, are an official Army training site, so we get one Army resident a year to train them in general surgery, and uh, we have an embedded forward surgical team that we're their permanent assignment, and we're looking for even more collaborations with the Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, moving forward. Well, Kenny, uh, I think that it, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that you have been an inspiration to others, 
and you are looking at just two of the many, many people who are inspired by you, by your story, your courage, your incredible commitment to helping others. Last question, how does it feel to know that the impact of your work and career are indeed an inspiration for so many? So it's, um, it's very humbling. Um, I'm at the point now where the residents that I've trained uh, and the students I've trained are off doing great things. They're chiefs and, and chairs in other places. Um, and one of my former residents paid me the greatest compliment uh, a program director could ever have. I was going to Afghanistan and he was coming back from Afghanistan and we, we met uh, at a tent at Fort Benning, Georgia at a dinner table and we just ran into each other because we were, we were like passing in the night and uh, his name is Chat Johnson. I actually just spoke with him last week and it was in 2007 and uh, by virtue of there were at that time six army training programs, the program directors depending upon how deployments go, could have trained a significant number of surgeons, and it could have been any, uh, any other program director. Mm -hmm. But in 2007, um, at a, in a certain four-month window, I trained 70% of the surgeons in Afghanistan were trained by me. Uh, so that blows me away to this day. Unbelievable. To this day, wow. that blows me away. I don't know how we go on from there. <laughs> that, that's Kenny? We can't thank you enough for carving out some time and from your very busy schedule to meet with us. It has been a pleasure, and, and we really can't thank you enough right. for Well, you want to thank me? You come time. out to Portland. We'll, we'll go to a winery in the Milano Valley, and we'll catch up. You're talking to two good. retired educators. <laughs> you you might, us we might be there this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I can't thank, thank you guys no, enough. It's great you, seeing you. It's great thank seeing you, you too. like to remind you, our power of three listeners, that you can contribute to the overtime episode by submitting questions or comments to the voice message feature at anchor.fm or our email, rtwtmc at gmail.com. Thank you.